Our guest now is Mike Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers joining us for Legally Speaking. Mike, thanks for being here. Hey, always, uh, I always enjoy being here. Uh, thanks for having me. And you've got, um, I had a chance to look at some of you know, the topics that we're going to be hearing about today, all of them interesting. The first one, I, I had a chance to read an article subsequent to the notes you'd sent, and it's a, a pretty heartbreaking case in, in various ways. Tell, maybe start us off with that, the Crown's failure to disclose information in this criminal negligence case. Indeed, it is a tragic case on multiple levels. Uh, the background of it is that a uh, 19-month-old child uh, drowned in a bathtub uh, while being uh, under the supervision of a babysitter uh, uh, who was looking after the child. Um, it, uh, the tragedy of the death of the 19-month-old was compounded by uh, what happened to the babysitter, uh, the babysitter who was 28 years of age and described by the Court of Appeal in their decision that was released yesterday was described as somebody who had borderline intellectual functioning with an IQ in the range of 60 to 65, depending who you asked. Um, she was herself the mother of uh, four children. Um, and what happened uh, is that there was a, an examination of the 19-month-old um, by a medical examiner uh, pathologist uh, who came to the conclusion that uh, some injuries found on the head of the child uh, must have been uh, uh, caused by this the babysitter, given the, their opinion offered about their timing. Um, and uh, furthermore, this pathologist offered an opinion uh, about how long it would take a child to drown. Uh, and the babysitter, as a result of that, uh, was charged with murder. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, the um, uh, babysitter wound up pleading guilty to an offense of criminal negligence causing death. And to understand that and why this is such a tragedy from the justice system perspective, um, you first of all need to appreciate that, of course, the punishment for the conviction for murder is life in prison. Uh, and so if somebody is offered some opportunity to plead guilty to something less than that, they are powerfully incentivized to do it so as to avoid the prospect of spending the rest of their life in jail. Um, and the reason this case is such a tragedy from a, a justice system perspective uh, is that in criminal cases, there is an obligation on the behalf of both the Crown and the police uh, to provide what's referred to as disclosure uh, to the defense. That is to say, uh, a copy of all of the evidence and information that they've gathered about the case. Um, and the, the reason for that requirement should be obvious to people thinking about it. Um, but the, the obligation extends to evidence and information that would both help the Crown or make it more likely the person would be convicted and exculpatory information that might uh, show the person isn't guilty. And what happened in this case uh, is that very significant information was not provided uh, to the uh, lawyer acting for the babysitter. And the information not provided was really in two categories. First of all, uh, the uh, Crown in British Columbia uh, received a ultimately a 140-page report uh, from the uh, Alberta Justice Department uh, who investigated the pathologist uh, and found that many of the opinions of the pathologist were unreliable, and they indicated they were not going to rely upon the pathologist in future cases. Uh, and they provided to the Crown here uh, 
uh, a detailed report about their findings and why they came to that conclusion. And the Court of Appeal found that Crown Counsel, who was prosecuting the babysitter, did not uh, inform the, the woman, the babysitter, or her lawyer about that report out of Alberta. Um, furthermore, uh, the Court of Appeal concluded that there was other very significant information in the form of medical documents that the RCMP had uh, that showed that the 19-month-old, only a few weeks before uh, the drowning, uh, had a, a viral brain infection, which had an impact on the child's ability to even stand up and muscle control, something that might well have um, provided an explanation both for the injuries on the child and what happened in the bathtub. Uh, and the Court of Appeal found there was uh, the RCMP did not provide that to the Crown, and it was not provided to the lawyer acting for the babysitter. So was this a case and, of, oh, sorry to interrupt, but it sounds yeah. like this was heading in the direction of um, concerns that there was some kind of tunnel vision, whether it was on behalf of the police or the or the Crown, not necessarily malicious conduct uh, by the Crown, but was there a concern or suggestion that it was sort of a, a tunnel vision approach to this? Well, that may, that may help explain it, right? Oftentimes, and this is a concern, it'll tie into the next uh, topic that we're going to talk about. Um, is that sometimes, of course, when you're the person or people involved in an investigation, it's easy to form some opinion about what happened and then focus on anything that seems to that run counter to the conclusion you've reached to discount it or maybe not think it's important. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we have this broad obligation on both the Crown and the police to provide all of the information and evidence they collect to the defense. Uh, and uh, the uh, Court of Appeal found that the failure to provide the information both about the uh, possible problems with the pathologist, which was the center of the case, and as well the medical information about the brain infection the child had, uh, both were things which undermined the decision ultimately to plead guilty. Right, the woman was faced with, uh, you know, the prospect of life in prison, and was not told uh, about the problems with the pathologist or some of this medical information, and that led to her uh, decision to plead guilty to this offense of criminal negligence. And I must say, it's somewhat haunting. It's, frankly, the other thing you went back and read was the uh, trial judge or the decision of the judge sentencing the woman and explaining why it was necessary to sentence her to a period in jail. Uh, and as a result of it, the babysitter lost uh, custody of her four children. Um, she was sentenced to a year in prison. Um, uh, she lost her home and became homeless. Her, her life was essentially uh, ruined um, as a result of uh, her pleading guilty when she wasn't told and her lawyer wasn't told uh, about the very material evidence that might suggest she wasn't negligent at all. It's it's heartbreaking. Um, and and so, it, well, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I, I was reading as well that the mother of this uh, toddler who died herself uh, thought that it was an accident all along. And as you say, the impacts on this woman who was convicted, um, there's discussion about the fact that she was attacked in jail as a baby killer. She talked about not being able to smile anymore. She was suffering such acute depression. So the impacts of it were clearly, you know, very profound. It, it's really haunting. And, and I must say, it's the kind of case that 
you know, those of us who do this kind of work every day, you, you just pray you don't wind up uh, involved in some case where there's this kind of a apparent very serious miscarriage of justice, right? Um, and so much of the, the criminal justice system uh, relies, frankly, on trust and people acting in a professional fashion, right? There is just uh, so much of it uh, that, you know, the, the judge sentencing this woman is relying upon uh, the guilty plea and the decision to plead guilty and the information they're provided. Defense counsel would be providing uh, advice to this woman about her jeopardy and what she might wish to, to do based on the information they are provided by Crown and the police. Uh, and so it, it's an example of just how much uh, of the system relies upon people acting in a professional fashion, fulfilling their, you know, in that case, constitutional obligation and professional obligation to provide uh, complete disclosure about evidence not only that might be helpful in convicting somebody, but might show that they are innocent. And in this case, it wasn't done, uh, and the result has been a, a ruinous uh, for this woman. Uh, the Court of Appeal, uh, for its part, um, and I should say there is a special prosecutor appointed, that would be a sort of a lawyer, sort of independent of the regular crown, uh, who concluded that uh, the appeal should be allowed. She should be given an extension of time to appeal. And so the appeal was allowed, the conviction was overturned, uh, and the Court of Appeal uh, directed a judicial stay of proceedings uh, on the basis that you know, it would be completely inappropriate to, for example, order a new trial, given that this woman has served all of her sentence um, many years ago now, and her life has been uh, ruined uh, as a result of what happened to her. And so it's uh, yet another uh, cautionary tale, and we've had a number of these in Canada, uh, where we have, uh, uh, despite uh, having, I think, uh, a very good justice system, it's far from perfect. Uh, and when people who are involved in it don't do what they are uh, required to do, this is the kind of uh, tragedy uh, that results. And so not only do we have the tragic loss of the 19-month-old child, but we've had um, a person um, spend that period of time in custody, the impact on her children uh, and her life, uh, it's uh, an absolute tragedy. So it's a cautionary tale uh, for everyone involved uh, to make sure that we don't get tunnel vision and we do what's required. Uh, and, um, you know, even in cases like this where it's understandable why people would be very concerned about the death, the tragic death of a young child, we need to be so careful uh, because uh, mistakes like this uh, just have uh, profound impacts on uh, everyone involved and have a profound impact on just trust in the justice system uh, generally. So just a tragic case. And uh, hopefully we've at least done what we uh, can do now to try to uh, make it right. Uh, but uh, that's going to do little to repair uh, the life of the uh, the babysitter or her children or family, uh, all of whom would have been just terribly impacted by uh, by what happened to her. And Michael, you said so there was the a, you said there was a stay of proceedings. Is that what uh, is colloquially thought of as being? You know, the, the the matter was quashed. Is that what we would think of in, in terms of what what the outcome or the decision by the court of appeal was? And I guess as a as yeah, a follow up, I, I wondered about. It sounds like the um, decision was not an acquittal, though. So in a sense, she wasn't completely exonerated. I gather that's something that her lawyers were maybe seeking. 
Yeah, that was the other interesting thing. The, the Court of Appeal concluded that without question, um, her guilty plea needed to be overturned because of this profound failure to provide her and her lawyer with information that led to her pleading guilty in the first place. But they, the Court of Appeal then had to consider, well, what is the remedy for that? What should we do? Um, should they find her not guilty? Should they order a new trial? Uh, or what should they do? Uh, and the conclusion here was that the uh, appropriate uh, remedy uh, was not to order a new trial, which might otherwise have occurred, right, on the basis that, look, uh, that was improper, but, uh, you know, go back and try it again. The, the conclusion was that <laughs> doing so uh, would so tarnish the integrity of the justice system, uh, because this is one of the Court of Appeal found one of the clear cases where, um, uh, you know, ordering a new trial would just be uh, unfair and unjust. I don't know how else to put it when you're dealing with somebody who has served their entire sentence, pled guilty on the basis of not being told uh, about the evidence that would have uh, uh, perhaps undermined uh, the prospect of her ever being convicted of anything. Um, and so the Court of Appeal found that the, the appropriate remedy here was to enter what's called a judicial stay of proceedings, uh, referencing sort of the need to maintain a sense of a sort of fair play and decency in the criminal justice system and uh, ordering a new trial, which might otherwise have been the remedy, uh, would just not have met that uh, requirement given what happened to this uh, poor woman. What a what a fascinating and heartbreaking case. We're joined at the moment by Mike Mulligan from Mulligan Defence Lawyers with his weekly segment, Legally Speaking. We've got to take a quick break, but we'll be back after that with more discussion with Mr. Mulligan. Welcome back. I'm Rob Buffum filling in for Adam Sterling both today and tomorrow. Our guest at the moment is Mike Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Mike, we were, that was an interesting, uh, and as we mentioned, tragic case we just spoke about. You've got a couple more items we're hoping to get to in the next nine minutes or so. The, the first of which is uh, regarding the province's announcement yesterday, which wasn't new, the dedicated hubs, but the location of, of them was. Maybe give us your, your thoughts on uh, this effort to target repeat violent offenders. Uh, well, uh, I guess like many things, my, uh, my reaction to it is mixed. Um, I, I must say I smiled a bit as I read the uh, news releases, or news release, I should say, news releases about uh, this matter uh, yesterday, uh, because indeed the government issued five separate news releases, all with the same content and title, uh, except the last few words in the headline. Uh, they issued all these news releases saying, dedicated hubs targeting repeat violent offending, and then the five different versions had NBC's interior, on Vancouver Island, in northern BC, in Lower Mainland, and then for everyone else, I guess, who doesn't live in any of those places, to build a safer community, or to build a safer communities. So, um, so that that was interesting. Uh, so there, there's clearly a sort of a political uh, element to the announcement uh, yesterday. But the, the substance of it, and the reason I say it's mixed, um, is that it's a proposal to uh, the government says to build these 12 hubs, including on in Victoria and Nanaimo and various other locations. Uh, and the hubs are purportedly to deal with uh, repeat violent uh, offending. Uh, and uh, the suggestion is that there are going to be police dedicated to them, uh, probation officers and crown. Um, and the reason I say it's sort of a mixed reaction to that is that, um, first of all, 
to the extent that this announcement uh, represents confirmation of a plan to provide some additional funding uh, to this problem um, is positive, right? After all, we, we have a current circumstance where like in Victoria, if you've driven past the police station, they've got a giant banner hanging up trying to hire people and they seem to have put bumper stickers on the back of the patrol cars trying to encourage people to join. And so if you have some additional funding that makes it easier to uh, hire uh, police, that can only be positive. Um, the concern I had with respect to the proposal deals specifically with the concept of having, as part of these hubs, the dedicated crown. Uh, and it'll depend on how exactly that's managed. And the reason that's important uh, is that um, in BC and in Canada, uh, Crown Council are independent of the police. It's not like in U.S. crime shows where the district of, you know, district attorney shows up in a police car uh, telling the police what to do. Um, in BC and in Canada, the way it works is that the police will uh, conduct a, their own independent investigation, uh, and they will send to Crown a report about what they think happened, along with whatever evidence they've gathered. And then the first task of Crown Council is to independently review that report and evidence to make a decision about whether somebody should be charged with an offense, and if so, what. And having Crown separate and independent from the police is very important. The uh, Crown are intended to act as sort of small M ministers of justice, and they're intended to be a fresh review of what the police have gathered. And we touched on this in the last story, which was one of the things that we have seen can lead to wrongful convictions is where you have tunnel vision that forms, right? You have somebody who's doing an investigation and they come to a, a hypothesis about what happened and then they look for things that are um, supportive of that hypothesis. It's sort of human nature, right? It's not malfeasance. It's That's what people tend to do. Uh, and having... Crown review the results of an investigation independently once it's completed allows for some of that independence. And if you have Crown Council somehow integrated into these hubs, uh, and there's a suggestion that, like in the news release, talking about them providing uh, advice as part of uh, the uh, process, if you have somebody who's embedded in some hub who's providing uh, advice to the uh, police uh, about investigations uh, and then uh, making a decision about the prosecution of that very investigation, you're going to lose that benefit of uh, independence and having a fresh independent review of things. Uh, and so I think we need to be very careful about what we're doing and how this is uh, organized. Um, if done properly, there could be positive things here, like they talk about uh, trying to increase information sharing and so on. All of that's very positive. Um, but uh, we shouldn't structure the thing in a way that you've got uh, Crown Police and the probation officer working as some kind of a, a team. They really shouldn't be. Um, the Crown should be independent. And I, I should say as well that that would have some impact on uh, the way in which submissions from the Crown are received in court, right? Is at the moment, the way it would work is if you have Crown saying, look, uh, we're taking some position on bail or we're taking some position on sentencing or whatnot, 
there can be some confidence that the Crown is genuinely taking that position in an independent way from the uh, investigators. And we shouldn't undermine that uh, by having uh, people uh, crown uh, in- embedded in some kind of a hub. Uh, that That's generally not going to be helpful and I, I don't think would uh, serve to address the uh, legitimate uh, problem. That's not to say there shouldn't be integration. That's not to say there shouldn't be funding. Uh, none of those, that's not to undermine any of that. Uh, but when we get to the prosecution stage, um, they, they really shouldn't be a part of a, a hub. And I'm also hard-pressed to understand why it would be uh, necessary to have some um, sort of specially, you know, designated crown doing this. You know, what are they going to have, a, a badge or something on? Um, you know, there there, there isn't, I, I can say with confidence, um, th- there isn't some failure uh, by the Crown to prosecute people appropriately uh, who are um, charged with violent uh, offences. There, there simply isn't. There, there's no lack of ability or training or, or, or any of those things uh, to, to do that work. Uh, and so, well, um, you know, for example, there was an announcement to uh, provide funding to hire 50 new crown, right? That may be a positive thing, uh, but uh, I don't know that uh, it's necessary to uh, have those people um, designated uh, in a, a hub of some kind. Um, you know, the uh, people who are doing that work uh, do it uh, professionally and appropriately. There's no failure there. There's no lack of training or experience. And so um, I don't think we should um, in our legitimate efforts to tackle what is a, a, a real uh, problem, right? We see the result of social disorder, not only in terms of uh, violent uh, offenses, but in terms of other things, right? We see mischief things, windows being broken, and if there are additional resources that allow uh, appropriate uh, time to be put into those uh, prosecutions or information being shared about uh, who's involved with them or funding for officers to investigate them, all of that is to the good, and there can be some positive things there. Uh, but uh, the answer does not, uh, in my opinion, uh, the answer would not be to embed crown some specialized crown in a hub. Uh, that uh, that's probably the, the the wrong direction. So it's mixed, um, and uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see what uh, the reality of this is and how exactly they structure it. Uh, hopefully they do that in a way that uh, preserves independence uh, while uh, preserving some of the positive things that were uh, proposed in the various news releases yesterday. Well, thank you very much. That is Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defence Lawyers with his weekly segment, Legally Speaking. We'll have to wait till next week perhaps to hear about the car wash mishap in the civil case. <laughs> but thank you very much for your time, Michael. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Have a great day.